it's almost certainly a conspiracy. My local supermarket has more than 22 different kinds of canned tomatoes and only one type of fish sauce. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about an invisible conspiracy that's happening all around us. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Since 1928, in the heart of Austin, Texas, Austin Sunshine Camps has been bringing the magic of overnight summer camp without the barrier of cost to the economically disadvantaged youth of Austin. They provide free 10-day, 9-night overnight summer camp experiences. Our campers grow, connect, and learn in a safe, happy environment filled with nature and new experiences. To learn more and to help send deserving kids to camp, please visit sunshinecamps.org. Thank you. So how do we explain the ethnic aisle in the supermarket? How do we explain the fact that Italian food is all over the supermarket, exactly where you would expect from particular ingredients in the frozen section, in the tomato section, in the pasta section, but food from places like Thailand or Mexico is all together in one little section. Many supermarkets in the Northeast have a Goya section that just sells the food of one company. It must be some sort of conspiracy. Perhaps the people who run the supermarkets are racist or nationalist or opposed to immigration. Perhaps the giant companies that somehow control the food industry are working together to block new entrants. Something must be going on. In fact, it's easy to understand how most organizations work if we look at one of two things. First, sunk costs. Are they embracing a status quo? How are things done around here? Organizations that stick around, stick around because they're good at sticking around. And part of sticking around, often, until it's too late, is not changing that much. And the second thing is, many organizations try to optimize to make the most profit they can. And that's where this conspiracy comes in. Because if you want to make more money in the supermarket business, you need each item on the shelf to turn as many times as possible, meaning that it doesn't sit there for 11 months before that box of Pop-Tarts sells. The more you sell per square foot, the more your profit's going to go up. And the second thing you want to do is make sure that the profit per item is as high as possible. Turns out those two things don't sit right next to each other. It's usually one or the other. So the first question to ask is, why do supermarkets have an ethnic aisle at all? Why, if I go to a supermarket in Italy, is there a little section for American food? Why, if I go to a supermarket in the Bronx, is there a little section selling gefilte fish? And you get the idea. Well, the reason that there's an ethnic aisle at all is because if someone comes into your store looking for something specific and they don't find it, they won't buy a whole bunch of other groceries. And generally speaking, even though the turnover is lower, the profit per item can be higher. It can be higher for a couple reasons. One, maybe a foodie is looking to buy that fish sauce. Well, foodies generally are willing to pay more money for food. Or secondly, maybe it's somebody who's homesick, who doesn't have the desire to swap 
fish sauce for, say, vinegar, because they want something specific. So they'll pay a bit more. So that's why supermarkets seem to have magically, around the world, built these ethnic aisles. Not because they're trying to put everything into a place where they won't sell very well, but precisely the opposite. They're willing to put everything into one place because that's the only way it will sell enough to pay for that square footage. But back to the other idea of using shelf space to maximum advantage. What most supermarkets have done is turned to the giant companies that used to simply try to bribe the store manager and say, fine, pay us. So Heinz and Kraft and the rest of them pay shelving allowances. Go to your supermarket and look who's on the end cap, that super valuable spot at the end of the aisle. This week, it might be Pepsi. If you go back next week, it's probably going to be Coke. Pepsi and Coke alternate. Why do they alternate? Because the store manager wants to be fair? No, they alternate because that spot is up for auction and they buy it from the store. The planogram that is run by the retail store, they didn't hand it over to giant package goods companies because they're weak or stupid. They did it because they're getting paid to do it. And so this conspiracy, this conspiracy is organized around a simple idea. How do we make more profit with the resources we have? We have a finite amount of square footage. What should we put here? Because if we put something in, we got to take something out. Growing up in 1976, I worked in a bagel factory. I know from good bagels. I know how a bagel is supposed to be prepared. I can tell you with authority that a lender's bagel is not a good bagel. So how is it that lender's bagels ended up being the first bagels in most supermarkets? Did that happen because store managers were anti-Semitic and wanted to put horrible bagels on the shelves? No. It's for a couple of reasons. The first one is supermarkets don't really sell anything. What they do is offer things that people want to buy. Supermarkets aren't particularly good at getting somebody to buy something they don't want to buy. They don't have salespeople. There used to be salespeople back before the supermarket, back when you walked in and there was someone behind the counter in an apron and you told that person what you wanted to buy and then they went and got it for you out of a bin. That person could try to sell you something. But now they're self-service. The shopping cart was a brilliant invention because it got people to buy more stuff, but they tend to buy the stuff they want to buy. So the supermarket has a long history of being bad at shaping what people buy. The supermarket, for a long time, spent an enormous amount of counter space and money on fresh produce and unadulterated dairy products. And you may have noticed that both of those sections are smaller. That's because consumers, on average, want stuff that's salty, fatty, sweet, and processed. How that came to be is the topic for another podcast. But what we know is this. If you want to be super at the supermarket, you have to appeal to average people. Because by definition, most of the people who walk into a supermarket are average. And that's why if you care about any particular kind of food, you are probably disappointed by what you find at the supermarket. Because everything there is slightly unexceptional. You will not find exceptional 
fruits and vegetables the way you might find at a farmer's market. You will not find exceptional condiments the way you might find at Calustian's or H-Mart because they're not in the exceptional business. They're in the average business. It is a conspiracy of making a profit and also of depending on what you did yesterday because with 40,000 items on the shelves, there just isn't time to reevaluate every single item every single day. But then something new comes along, something new like sriracha sauce, which isn't really from Thailand and isn't really Vietnamese. It's a California product made by somebody who emigrated here, trying to capture some of the flavors that he missed. He did some really fascinating things to bring it to market, the biggest one being not trademarking or trying to defend the trademark for the trade dress. So if you buy something with a red top and a rooster on it, it's entirely possible he didn't make it, that someone just said, oh, I can make this brand of chips or this fast food product and don't have to pay anybody and don't have to ask permission. Opening this to anybody who wanted it turned out to be a brilliant way to get the idea to spread. And because the idea spread, not by the supermarket, but outside of the supermarket, supermarkets follow because they're dumb. All they want to do is increase sales per square foot. So back to this idea of the ethnic aisle. Is the ethnic aisle going to be here forever? Well, it's really interesting to note that H-Mart, starting from scratch, bringing Korean and other Asian foods to the United States, does exactly the same thing. They have an aisle for Chinese noodles that's different than the aisle for Japanese noodles. Why? Because the purpose of the aisles is to help people find what they are looking for. A long time ago, I took a graphic design class with the late, great Milton Glaser. I lasted three sessions before he asked me to leave the class and never come back. But the thesis of the class was designing things that matched the vernacular and the genre of the store where they were going to be sold. And the first day, he sent all these fancy designers home with an assignment. Come in with a prototype for something to sell at the supermarket. So people brought in beautifully designed bags of rice and laundry detergent and everything else. And he ripped them all to shreds. And he said, do you know why Tide looks like Tide? Do you know why Carolina rice, which at that time was still the number one selling rice in the typical supermarket, do you know why Carolina rice looks like that? He said, because back in the 20s, when it was behind the counter and that guy in the apron had to get it for you out of the bin, the packages had to look a certain way to leap off the shelves from 20, 30 feet away so you would notice them and ask for them. And so people in the 30s and the 40s, when supermarkets started to grow, gravitated to those packages, to those brands, things like Tide and Carolina. But those people are mostly dead now. But when those people had them in their home, Heinz Ketchup included, their kids saw them. And when their kids grew up and went to the supermarket, you've got it, they were average and they wanted the regular kind. And so supermarkets make most of their money selling the regular kind to regular people. And the beauty of the, quote, ethnic aisle for a supermarket and for the shopper is if you want to self-identify as somebody who is not, quote, regular, where regular means average as defined by the supermarket in America in 1935, 
have we got it all for you. It's all right here, right where you are looking for it. And if they started spreading it throughout the entire supermarket, a giant polyglot collection of ingredients based on what kind of tree it grew on, as opposed to how you're supposed to cook with it, they would sell less. They would frustrate people. Now, the supermarket is in massive churn right now. Just let's pick something like nut milk, which didn't even used to exist. Now, we've got the nut milk in the health food aisle. We've got the nut milk in the milk refrigerated aisle, the most expensive part of the store to maintain. And we've got the nut milk in this new aisle of aseptically packaged milks. So it's confusing for the shopper. It's confusing for the seller. But consumers are changing their habits. They're not changing their habits because the supermarket wants them to. If it were up to the supermarket, there would only be a thousand items. They would all come in perfectly shaped packages that fit next to each other, and they would all have similar margins, selling, selling, selling. The supermarket is responding. The conspiracy is the invisible hand conspiracy, the conspiracy that happens when you try to sell average stuff to average people and keep track of your profit and keep track of your sales per square foot. Sometimes it works. It works because I can walk into any supermarket in the world and have in all four hemispheres, north and south, east and west, speaking almost any language. Walk into that supermarket and I can find what I am looking for because the supermarkets have evolved just as surely as Darwin's creatures evolved. They evolved because doing something new that works is leading them to do it again. And so we now have this delivery system that delivers more variety at a better price than any food delivery system in the history of the world. Is there a lot of waste? Yes, there is. But most of it happens early in the industrial process, things dying before it gets to the packaging plant. But it's a miracle that you're able to buy a can of corn for 59 cents. If you think about the steps that went in to bringing that to you wherever you are with a perfect record of consumer health, it's stunning. So does it make it hard for the entrepreneur who wants to walk in get more shelf space, which could lead to more sales? Of course it does. It always has. Does it mean that exceptional products are boxed out? They are every day. And that's why alternative kinds of stores show up online and off. But if you're looking for a conspiracy, it starts by looking in the mirror because they're seeking to bring average stuff to average people. And we're the ones who get to decide what's average. What we ask for, what we buy, what we pay for, that's what they respond to. And if you're an entrepreneur thinking to break through, the supermarket's not your friend. The supermarket doesn't lead anything. It goes last. They will react to whatever it is that you do in the marketplace. They will not cheer you on because that's not their business model. The conspiracy they are playing is a different one. And no, unfortunately, the supermarket isn't going to root for you. Maybe Ari at Zingerman's will root for you. Maybe the lovely people at Kalustian's will do something to promote you because that's their business. But the supermarket? The supermarket is part of a conspiracy. It is a conspiracy of reacting to change begrudgingly, a conspiracy of showing up with the regular kind for the people who are average. And that's what we signed up for, and that's what we get. And a special thanks to my previously unacknowledged podcasting hero, a great guy, Roman Mars, 99% Invisible, is a regular companion of mine. I love that podcast. 
This podcast was a response to one of the only episodes I didn't love, their episode on the ethnic food aisle, which you can find in the show notes. Thanks, Roman. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know... I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Two really juicy questions this week. Hey, Seth. This is Dylan from California. I was listening back on a few episodes of yours, one of which was about what is school for? And I wonder if you would speak to what is sport for? I am a person who loves running, and in high school, I had a whole group of friends who loved running. We ran track and cross country, and I saw a lot of these same high school running friends head off to run long-distance track and cross country at college. But after college, most of these running friends that ran in college were burnt out, dispassionate, and sick of running. And, you know, I feel like we're seeing the mental health toll that accompanies many elite athletes today. And so as, as I was listening to you speak about what is school for, I wondered how you think we might be mucking it up for our kids and young adults pursuing sports. Or even as a start, how, how might we be mucking it up for people in PE class? But uh, yeah, thanks for all the good listening, Seth. Take care. Thank you for this, Dylan. I've riffed on this just a little bit on my blog, but let's try here. Try to imagine a third grade or a fifth grade or a ninth grade class where kids show up to do arithmetic or maybe even math once they've gotten a little bit farther along. And the teacher says, oh, you're trying really hard, but you're not nearly as good at math as the other kids. You shouldn't even bother. Or perhaps they say, you're the best person at doing math in this whole classroom, but you're never going to win a Fields Medal. You shouldn't even bother. This whole idea of elite sports is fundamentally flawed. It's flawed mathematically 
because the number of people who can win a gold medal in curling or downhill mogul or surfing or tennis or whatever sport you want to pick can only be one. And if we're going to sign people up to compete with one another where there's only one slot for a winner and everybody else is somehow denigrated because their status isn't high enough, I think we've made a significant mistake. Because the purpose of a soccer team is not to collect soccer trophies. The school is not suffering from a trophy shortage. Spending time and money to push kids who are 6 or 12 or 15 years old to win at a game where they are playing against other kids who need to lose for them to win teaches them nothing of much significance. Because winning or losing is largely based on the caliber of the people they are playing against. That's not teaching them very much. Saying to a kid, you are benched because you don't have genetic advantages that make you taller or faster, therefore you don't get to play, teaches them nothing much in particular. Spending taxpayer money, spending the time of students to put them into, quote, elite situations where the measurement of performance is whether they happen to beat the person who is next to them makes no sense to me whatsoever. If Jesse Owens or Mark Spitz were competing today, they would lose every race. Does that mean they're losers? I don't think so. I think that the purpose of sports is to teach people to fall in love with who they are, to be able to push themselves to be better than they are. Not to be better than somebody else, but to progress, to find joy. That the purpose of team sports is to teach kids to play in a team. And if you're a hero because you scored a goal and you're a goat because you didn't, that's not what teamwork is. So we have this massive opportunity to use physical interaction to teach kids things like cooperation and strategy and insight. And yes, the ability to compete when the stakes are high. But no, keeping track of trophies makes no sense whatsoever. And this whole idea of Division One versus Division Three, and big sports and institutions spending hundreds of millions of dollars. I was on the road a few years ago, and there was at a not famous college, the private jet for their football team. Tell me how a famous college or a not famous college can justify having a private jet so their football team can travel across the country to play football against other teams. What is the point of that? How do we justify that in terms of the development of human beings? So I could rant about this all day, but I appreciate you bringing it up. I'm glad you still like to run, and I'm sorry the coaches and the system ruined running. 40, 50, 60 years of running for your friends who ended up going to a place that thought trophies were the point. Hi, Seth. Thanks for being my running buddy as I run through the Australian bushland. It's Marnie here from Australia and an avid listener of your podcasts. So recently I was listening to your podcast about status and leverage and how the tall boy in the group would probably be the one that people would ask for directions from. And that very night I had an experience where a message that I have been, de been delivering, particularly about light pollution and people trying to turn their lights off at night to save our wildlife species and 
uh, and the night sky, of course. Uh, and it's a, a topic that I talk about frequently and I started a charity about it. And yet a colleague, a male friend who is very tall and young and handsome, delivered the same message and I suddenly saw the group of people that I know very well listening to him more attentively than they had ever listened to me. And it made me think about the fact that I have these visions and I go out and I create new avenues. I create a ruckus. I do things differently from people. I'm not the same as everybody else. And in fact, I know I get employed more often than not because I don't think like other people. I bring a new set of eyes to an old industry or an old problem perhaps. And yet I get about 18 months to two years into delivering this concept or this um, vision in the world and I find myself underestimating my values, watching other people like my colleague the other night, seeming to be able to control the room more or have more power. And I wonder what that is. I wonder what it is in me that needs to, de- to be developed so that I don't step away from projects too soon and leave them unattended or for someone else to pick up and, and get the glory where I left off, I guess. Anyway, that sounds a little bit pessimistic, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. And thank you for all your work. Thank you. Thank you for this one, Marnie. And thanks for the work that you are doing and for seeing and understanding that fairness is not always on offer. All of us are guilty of this, that we judge people based on some level of charisma, some level of personal appearance, whether they're a close talker, whether they stutter, whether they have a particular disability or not. All of us have been judging people our whole lives. I've never met someone who didn't. We do that because we're hardwired to do it and it's amplified by the indoctrination of culture. People like us do things like this, has built into it who are people like us and what are things like this. So given the inherent unfairness of the privilege some people have in different situations, some more than others, I have plenty There are people who have even more than me. Given that that is true, it's a little bit like, what's the altitude like where I'm running today? What's my gait like? Am I inherently advantaged or disadvantaged in this setting, whether I'm running a race or giving a presentation? We should change it to make it more fair, to let better, more generative, positive ideas surface. But along the way, People who have an advantage need to recognize they do and use it properly. And people who don't have an advantage ought to look at the fact that they're running uphill and also plan accordingly. And in your case, if it is true that you're a starter more than a finisher when it comes to bringing ideas to culture, you can fight that or you can embrace it. And you can embrace it by saying, what I need to do is make sure I am lining up front people, people who play into the biases and expectations of the people I am trying to sell to. I need to set them up to make a change happen because most of us are not signed up to make the culture more equitable. We're signed up to make the change we seek to make in the world. And if there are ways to make that change by using the systems of culture to our advantage, I think that that's a really important thing to do. It's not fair, but 
the ends in this case, I think, justify our means. Because what you have decided is that it is worth years of your life to cause this change to happen in our culture. And if wheeling out somebody else, letting other ideas work, I am in favor of that. I mean, let's pick a trivial example like typefaces. If it turns out that you believe people shouldn't care what typeface you use, but lots and lots of people respond better to Helvetica or Franklin Gothic than they do to Comic Sans, well then, using Comic Sans just to prove a point about equity among fonts is sort of dumb. Go ahead and use the font that's going to get people to pay attention. So, I know that that doesn't seem as idealistic as I would like to sound, but the point I'm trying to make is our work is worth doing. It's work that matters for people who care, but everyone is bringing biases to the table. I don't think we should pander and reinforce negative biases, but I think if we have the opportunity to use those biases to get the benefit of the doubt, to cause action to occur, that's worth it. That's my two cents. On the way to making things fairer, I think we need to lean in to figuring out how to create systems that cause change to happen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the work you do. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it first. Check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.